today. Righteous, trial, yearning, chase, punish. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested. Your, servants, your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precept. Righteousness is everlasting, and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. All right, good stuff. We got uh, news on Miss Magnuson. See, I went to visit her at Heartland today, and they said she's not there. She left today, but they didn't. You know, they can't tell you where she's going, or she went home, or the hospital, or so. I'm assuming that she got checked out and she's home. I don't know that, but that's what I'm assuming. And yes, we're hoping that's the case. So uh, if I hear more, I'll let you know. But I, I haven't been able to go all week. I've been just. 16 hour days without any time off so uh a uh, little busy but um thank you for coming tonight yes we made it we did make it and we have uh doug in ireland emailed and he says he is really struggling so he needs some prayer he's got a uh, uh, fatty liver disease which oh. is just driving him crazy and uh so he, he's just he's not happy right now and we need to have him in prayer he's the artist right? he's yeah. the artist he's the guy that does the art and uh, then I got, rather than reading this day in Christian history, I got a letter from a friend of mine, Tom Howard. You might see him posting on the Daily Devotional at time. Um, anyway, he, uh, he sent a long letter. He was on vacation, and he wrote me a three-page letter. So I guess when you go on vacation, you have nothing else to do. That's it. But I won't read the whole thing because some of it's private. And, uh, but he uh, did say, and I, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this. He said, I have a Roman Catholic background, which we were talking about Cindy and I a while ago, and I got uh, a letter from some friends in Oregon yesterday who have family that are Roman Catholic background. It seems like 90% of the church is Roman Catholic background. Uh, eventually people realize that the, the, the word is true and they need to come to the Lord through the word and not through man's uh, laws and man's made up, uh, uh, you know, rituals. rituals and the like. So anyway, he, he did say that. But down here, I put a little asterisk so I'd remember where to start. He said, I did start with the prophecy update you have, which most people do. That's why we have a prophecy update is because we want people to uh, uh, come to the church. You know, the prophecy update to me is a secondary issue. It takes actually more time throughout the week to get it ready. And I'm always having to change it and update it throughout the week. But uh, uh, that's why we do a prophecy update is to get people interested in the word. And he said, um, I started with that, but um, my heart desired more good. I started to take your advice and began to read my Bible from Genesis to Revelation for the first time in my life. I also started to listen to the Bible on CD in my truck instead of listening to music. I haven't turned off the Bible since I put it in a year ago now. It's been a little less than a year, but um, instead of listening to music. And since in my truck, basically uh, something more than 60... Uh, I, I can't read his handwriting. I, I could read it before, and for some reason, I, I'm, I have to go back and read it and think about what he's writing because his, his words are, um, it's very nice handwriting. I'm not complaining about it, but it's just, uh, anyway, I have been through the Bible several times. That means on the audio Bible, 
in the last two years. I'm on my third time through the Bible chronologically, meaning reading. So he's listening to it and he's reading it. Um, I have fallen in love with his word. I feel like I'm so, well, I won't say that because that's kind of private on his part. But anyway, you get the point. I was just so touched reading this letter. I got it three weeks ago, and we have not had a chance to read it here. Two weeks ago, we had something going on. Then last week was uh, Usama, so I did not have a chance to read it. But I just want to let you know that uh, when I get a letter like this, where somebody starts with the prophecy update, and they finally realize that the Bible is the Word of God, and that is where we should be, that's where my heart is. So I, I thank him, and I'll have to send him a letter back telling him I appreciate that. But he did say in here that he listens sometimes to the Bible study, so... If I get a post tomorrow that says, uh, I saw your Bible study, I'll know he got that. I'll still write you a letter, though. But, is he um, one of the fellows that uh, at the, um, had, had me go on the line and put him in the distribution? That I don't know. Yeah. I, I That I don't know. You'd have to check, but uh, it may be that. But he does attend his own church, and he wrote about that, etc. But um, uh, he, he attends the church here, the, the sermons, the Bible sure, studies, yeah. and really wonderful. Really wonderful. So that that's... Uh, just made my day. So let's go really quickly to the Lord in prayer and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, wherever Miss Magnuson is, we certainly pray for her. We ask that, uh, we hope that she's at home, but wherever she is, we ask that she would be happy and content and without any pains. She's just been through so very much in the past six or seven months. And uh, if she's home, we're very thankful for that. But we leave it in your hands and we'll wait and see where she's gone to. And we also pray for Doug, who is uh, suffering, and you know that he's got other uh, physical infirmities that plague him from time to time. And we would ask that your hand of, uh, your kind hand of healing would be on him, and that you would uh, uh, bring him to restoration in his health. But if you choose not to, just uh, help him to make it through each day, leaning on you and uh, being in that sure spot where he knows that his... Uh, salvation is secure he knows that he's got the hope of eternity with you and uh, so that's a great comfort right there but be with him and just help him to lean on you lord and we thank you for all the blessings you've given us we thank you for the chance to meet here and to open your wonderful word we thank you for it and we praise you for it and we do so in jesus name amen, amen. all right my mom made it just in time so she's not getting any chastisement today um we have um uh, tomorrow, anybody that wants to hold off on emails, that would be great. And the reason why is because Hedico's going to be working, so that's tough for her. But it's my 35th wedding anniversary. I'm just going to go home and put a cone on my head and, and sit at my desk and play, I think. so. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, yeah, I saw somebody today that I haven't seen for 34 years, 364 days, I think, is the lady that got Hedico and I the hotel downtown on our wedding night and i can't remember if i saw her after that because i was here on vacation from the air force to get married and so i don't know if i saw her but i went over and i saw her for the first time today and she's 71 or two she looks like she's 24. i couldn't believe it yeah sue bennett she used to work at the uh in the mall remember her she worked in the haircutting place yeah you'd remember if you saw her she hasn't changed but her hair straight but anyway i went in just to see if she was in because i've got in four times and she's always traveling somewhere but couldn't believe it so i went in and uh i said hello to her and we had a, a nice talk yeah i did say what i was going to say if i told you what i was going to say but i won't say it on the camera you're, you're um, going to go in and get fitted for a tux tomorrow so you 
take her out uh, I'm taking her out tomorrow night, but not in a tux. Okay. Oh, Probably not shoes, too. Um, okay. I, listen, we got married on the dock in the backyard, so we're not a real dress-up couple. That's not a bad place to get married. No, but it was six in the morning, so... Oh. Anyway, here we go. Um, I'll tell you a story. Seeing as how we're doing this, I, I, we haven't even gotten into the Bible, but it's a cute story. I was back, and it was our wedding to be wedding day the next day, and I, uh, I, I looked at her about 8.30, and I said, we didn't get rings. And she said, she said, oh. I said, well, let's go see if there's anybody opening. We went over to where Gulfgate Mall, you know, the stores are now, used to be a mall. And we went in there, and everything was closed. It was all dark, but the jeweler was Phillips Jewelers. He was in there working in the back and his, his gate was down and it was locked, you know, and he's just doing his stuff. He's an old Jewish guy. And I knocked on the thing and he's like, go away, go away. And I said, we're getting married tomorrow. We need rings. He came out and he sold us these 35 years ago tonight. This 35 years ago tonight, he sold us these. And uh, boy, when we came back from overseas, he, had, he moved over to his own store right in where my store was. He, he died eventually, and so I got his store where my store was. But anyway, he, uh, he, uh, we went in anytime we needed to buy anything for anybody, we'd go to him because we were so thankful for him that night. But that was 35 years ago tonight. And they take you, or did he have to? I don't know. I don't remember. We, we were in a flurry, and we just went in, bought two rings, and, and they... Yeah, this thing has been ovulated so many times. I'm telling you, you know, I've smashed my fingers and I'm working in the wastewater. I've had pumps lay on it and it's been, uh, I, but it hasn't broken. So, so that guy's a dead ringer. Dead ringer. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here we go. 1030, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 30. That was very good. Very good. Dead ringer. So, uh, do you want me to start a little bit? Wherever you got a paragraph, probably 27, I think. Uh, I'm actually going to start with 23 just to get the thought. Well, I'm in the, wrong, I'm in the wrong paragraph, so go ahead. 23 is fine. Okay. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nothing should, nobody should seek his own good, but for the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Mm. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered to in a sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for the conscience sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, I mean not yours. Or why should my freedom be judged by others' 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 conscience? And at thirty, where we begin, if I take part in a meal with thanks thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Okay, mine's a little different. I'll go ahead and read it. It says the same thing, but just different structure. But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Same general thought, but just worded differently. Paul has been referring to eating or not eating meat based on conscience, not personal conscience, but the conscience of others. Exactly right, because of the conscience of others. If they are going to be negatively affected in their understanding of the work of Christ, then refraining from eating is the proper course to take. And yet, in the last verse, he closed with, for why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? The answer is that it should not be so judged. We have liberties. 
and we are free to exercise them knowing that the Lord has accepted us. Everybody got that? We're free in Christ. We can do as we want within the parameters of Scripture, and we know that the Lord has accepted us in that. And so we have two sides to the coin which are presented. The first is that of not harming another's conscience, and the second is that we should be firm and fixed in our beliefs. In regards to the second premise, he says, but if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? He indicates that the food is acceptable. He has given thanks to the Lord for it, and nobody should charge him with wrongdoing when he has done nothing wrong. The food should be eaten without further anxiety. The pulpit commentary does a good job of explaining this. Here's what they say. He, they say, he desiderated, des, it's a very hard word for me to pronounce, sorry about that. He desiderated more considerateness and self-denial on the one side and on the other, a more robust and instructed faith. He would always tolerate the scruples of the weak, but would not suffer either weakness or strength to develop itself into a vexatious tyranny. Okay, I know it's a lot of words. In other words, Paul was one to acknowledge that we are the weak believers. That there, let me read that again. Paul was one to acknowledge that there are weak believers or uninformed non-believers that needed to be accommodated. But there are also contrarians that will perpetually nitpick another person to the point where they subjugate them to their every whim. Do you see the difference here? You got a weak believer, you don't want to harm his conscience, but you got other people that knowingly will sit there and nitpick you. And this is not uncommon, all right? I get emails full of them every day. They will do this just for the sake of being bossy or demonstrating a holier-than-thou attitude. One must be discerning and not let such people ruin the joy that we have in the Lord or rob, rob us of our freedoms. So there's a difference between the attitude that people are putting forth, and you need to know what their attitude is. If they're honestly struggling with the doctrine of eating a certain meat or worshiping on a certain day or one of the things that Paul has been addressing, then we need to correct that. We need to first not harm their sensibilities by abstaining from it, and at the same time, we need to correct them of their doctrine. But we do it lovingly, as Paul says, and then when their doctrine is corrected, and if they start to nitpick, if they start to be contrarians about it, listen, Scripture tennis solves nothing. They throw out a verse, you throw out a verse, they throw out a verse. They're not listening to what you're saying. You're citing verses properly in context, and they're just throwing out things that are out of context. It shows they have no desire to know the truth. If they are going to take things out of context and throw them back at you, after the second or third lob of the Scripture tennis game, you might as well just give up because you're not going to solve anything. They are doing this to show how holy they are or how knowledgeable they think they are when they are not, in fact, knowledgeable at all. And this is a real problem in Christianity. One must be discerning and not let such people ruin the joy that we have in the Lord or rob us of our freedoms. In everything, we are to consider our standing in Christ and work as best as we can within that position. It is a precept that he laid out in Romans chapter 14, and which he is reiterating to the Corinthians in his letter to them. Here are his words to the folks in Rome. He said, therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. 
Life application here. It is our duty to be considerate to those around us who are truly weaker in the faith and who lack in the knowledge of the Lord. However, it is also our responsibility to not let people who willingly act in a contrary manner towards our freedoms in Christ rob us of our joy. If someone is shown the truth of a matter, such as that all foods are acceptable and they still charge you with wrongdoing, ignore them. Enjoy your lobster and let them eat their peas, okay? Verse 1031. Hey, before I go on, if you're reading the Hebrews commentaries and now the James commentaries that I do every day, if you notice the life applications are a little longer than they are here, the reason why is because I did a commentary on the whole New Testament. That was years ago, and I did not save them, okay? And so it wasn't until about the book of Hebrews, maybe a little bit before that, the book of uh, uh, maybe Titus, somewhere around there, I started saving them because my friend died. He had saved them for me, and he was, he was compiling them, and he's out in Washington State. And he died, and I thought, well, you know, his family said, please continue to do these, and please continue to save them in memory of him. And so I have. But that's why I started doing a commentary through the Bible again. And so what I've done is I've taken parts of the old commentaries, and I've made them into a life application. And that's why the life people have asked that, and I just want to clarify why the life applications can be a page, is because... They're, they're more from my feelings rather than doctrinal in nature if you read the life com the life applications, but that's what's going on. So just so you know, the, these ones here, I didn't save them, and so I make the life applications very short and to the point. They get a little wordy later. It's because they are from an older commentary that was saved by Rory Wilson years ago. Okay, there you go. That's why, 1031. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. For the glory of God. And that's what everything is. Eating, drinking, whatever we do. Whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. I will tell you this. I posted this on Facebook some time ago, maybe three or four weeks or so. But um, from time to time, I will remember this and I'll put it on Facebook. Is that when Sergio built this system for streaming online, he built every single part of it by hand. Every single, uh, you know, the, the camera goes all over the place. It moves here, it moves there, it moves in and out. Every single gear he designed himself and he sent to a 3D printer and they printed it off to his specifications. He did all of it, all out of his mind and he never built anything like this in his life, but he did all of it, he did all the electronics. But what he did when he put in uh, the code to initiate the coming on sequence for this camera system. When I click that button and turn it on, a microburst goes out before anything else happens. The very first thing that happens is a microburst goes out through the system in code that says, holiness to the Lord. And so it, everything you do, even if you build a camera system for a little church in Sarasota, Florida, do it to the glory of God. You know, when he makes his videos, as you saw this past week, he does them, he does them meticulously. If he doesn't like the way it is, he'll spend a whole day redoing a one-minute section of that video. So that's just one example of countless people that are out there that are doing things to the glory of God. But everything to the glory of God. Okay, this verse is commonly known as the Christian's great first principle. Paul has been speaking about foods sacrificed to idols. Our Christian liberties in regards to that and our need to consider others' conscience in the process. He has shown that by following this pattern, which gives glory to God, we will be neither overly offensive towards others, nor complacent in our duties and responsibilities towards him. 
This then is the reason for the word therefore. It looks over the entire discourse he has thus far penned on the Christian's responsibility and he sums them up with one all-inclusive statement, whether you eat or drink. That covers everything he has written about concerning the issue of idols and our liberties and responsibilities in regards to them. And then he says, or whatever you do, including building a camera system, adds in every aspect of our life. Nothing is accepted. With each step we take, with each breath we breathe, which with each day we go off to work, or with every penny that we spend for the things we need or that we desire, nothing is exempt and everything is included. In all things we do, do all, as Paul says, to the glory of God. Being filled with the Spirit is not an active process. Unfortunately, Pentecostal and charismatic churches, and I don't hate fellow Christians, I just want their doctrine corrected. They take being filled with the Spirit in an active manner, and the Bible never teaches that way. When Paul writes in the Greek, and we have to pay attention to words, because words have meaning, and in the Greek, tenses have meaning, just as they do in English. If we say, I are going to the store, is there something wrong with that sentence? Yes. Obviously, it's incorrect. And for me to say that, come fill me, Holy Spirit, there is something incorrect about that because the Bible doesn't teach that. The, when he says, be filled with the Spirit, it is in the passive. It is never inactive in the Greek, okay? And so we cannot ascribe an active process of being filled with the Spirit to our lives and our walk because that is what we would call a category mistake. It's an error in understanding, okay? So, it is passive. We are sealed with the Spirit the moment that we receive Christ as Lord. We all have the Spirit. We will, we have, I should say, we have all of the Spirit that we will ever have at that very moment. But the Spirit can get more of us as we cede our life to Him. When we do, He feel, fills the voids that exist in our humanity. You see that? It's a passive filling based on our active working out our lives. As the Spirit is fully God, then He will only do in us that which glorifies himself, and therefore God will be glorified. It is a synergistic relationship of us ceding to the will of God and allowing God to be glorified in the process through the Spirit's work. Unfortunately, in what seems almost unappealing to most Christians, we cannot be in God's will if we don't know what that will is. Thus, we must read, study, and practice what is given in his word. There's no short, shortcut and no external injection of right knowledge which leads to right practice. Either we study and then put into practice his word, or we are not glorifying God as we should. And this is an inescapable truth. If you don't know the Bible, you cannot be pleasing to God as you're conducting your life because you're not conducting your life in accord with the word. And the word was given for that very purpose. If you're not understanding the Bible, if you're not reading it, if you're not applying it to your life, if you're not listening to it. Because listen, yesterday, last night, or I'm sorry, yesterday morning, because I read a different Bible in the evening. Yesterday morning at four o'clock, I got up and I read the Bible and it was the very end of the book of Revelation. I finished it and I closed it. And what did I do this morning? I opened it up to Genesis 1 verse 1 and I started reading again. And every time I do that, I read it and I think, gee, I don't remember reading this. Yeah. I, I, it happens all the way. I've read the Bible many, many times. And every time I go through, there's something in there that I say, isn't that unusual? I, I just don't remember that being there or I don't remember it being presented that way or I don't remember it tying in the way that it does. 
it is a lifelong thing. It's not like reading Edgar Allan Poe and you've read it one time and you say, I remember that story. It's never like that. God's word is way beyond our grasp. People have been studying it now for thousands of years and commentating on it and making commentaries and making up, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, what's the word? Anyway, um, and there's always something new coming out of it. Somebody will find a new chiasm in there. Somebody will find a new uh, parallel between two passages that hasn't been seen before. And they'll rush out and they'll put it on the internet. And all of a sudden, everybody's reading it and saying, imagine that. There's not another commentary going back to the church fathers that ever addressed that. And this happens every single day. And it's been happening with hundreds of millions of people around the world for the past. That's the amazing. It, it, it's astonishing. So we think that we're going to be living rightly, applying this word rightly, and having never read it or read it once and said, oh, I've read the Bible. Well, go ahead. Live your life that way. You're not going to be pleasing to God. All right. As a great summary of this verse, we can look at the eloquent words of Charles Ellicott. The quality of each act depends on the spirit which guides it and the motive from which it springs. The commonest thing may be done in a high Christian spirit. The greatest deed may spring from a low and selfish motive. A religious act done in a secular spirit is secular. A secular thing done in a religious spirit is religious. This is the great first principle of Christian life. Life application, doing all things to the glory of God means that we must know what will bring glory to God. Knowing what will bring glory to God is knowing what God has shown will bring him glory. Knowing what God has shown will bring glory to him is knowing his word, which is given for this purpose. Know your word, put your knowledge into practice, and give glory to God. And one more thing about the Spirit, because there are people that have tuned into 1 Corinthians and have not tuned into the Roman studies, maybe. And a good way to understand the Spirit, because people may not have understood what he's talking about. It's a passive filling. We open our lives up and the Lord fills us. And so the example that I always use, and everybody clicks when I say this, is it is like being married. Okay? Charlie Garrett is married to Hedico. All right? We've been married for 35 years. And I have been a wall of stone for 34 years. Okay? I haven't done anything with her. She's cooked every day. I've eaten a dinner and gone up and watched TV for 34 years. And finally, I think, gee, I'd like to get to know my wife. And so I start acting properly. And she says, oh, I never knew that about you. I never knew that about you. Isn't this nice? She has been married and she will never get more married to me than she was 35 years ago. But she can get more of me as I yield to her and I can get more of her as she yields to me. That is how the Spirit works. You will never get more of the Spirit in your life than the moment that you receive Jesus Christ. It will not happen. You have all of the Spirit in his fullness in your life, but he can get more of you, and God can be glorified through you as you yield to him. That is the example that you should remember. God, am I bringing you glory? Am I opening myself up to you? And how is that going to happen if you don't know this? It is not going to happen. No way, Jose. Okay? 1032. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jew, Greeks, or the church of God. Okay. The words of this verse are clear and explicit. In giving no offense, we are seeking the glory of God and thus honoring him. The reason for this is obvious. If it is God's will that none should perish but that all should come to repentance, which is 2 Peter uh, 3, verse 9, 
then our avoiding offense in others is in line with God's will. Instead of chasing people away from Christ, we should be leading them to Christ. And to ensure that we don't misunderstand or misapply the precept to one category of people and not to another, he gives the all-encompassing thought that we are to act in like manner to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. The Bible's two main categories of people are Jews and Gentiles, represented here by the term Greeks. We are to have the same standard for both categories, not holding ill will towards the unconverted Jews as so many do. They have the same need for Jesus Christ as do the Gentiles. And then as an additional category, Paul speaks also of the church of God. In this, he has made a distinction between the unconverted, meaning Jews and Greeks, and the converted, meaning the church of God, because the church of God is believers. Everybody got that? However, before I go on, the church of God is made up of what types of believers? Jew and Gentile. It never changes. Just because you come into the church, you do not become a Jew if you are a Gentile. You will never be a Jew. You are not born a Jew. You are not a Jew. And a Jew does not become a Gentile when they join the church. Jews remain Jews. And this is one of the large category mistakes, especially found by people from Romans 9 through 11, where the church has replaced Israel and all of these promises Paul is speaking about. And yet, as we saw very clearly when going through those verses, Paul makes a clear distinction as he speaks Israel, the church, Israel, the church, Israel, the Gentiles. He never says that Israel is the Gentiles or that we, the church, have become Israel. He never does that. Jews are Jews, Gentiles are Gentiles, the church is not Israel, but as we'll see in Sunday's sermon, the church is grafted into, meaning the Gentile church, is grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. Paul makes that explicit in the book of Ephesians. We are grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. We share in Israel, but we are not Israel, okay? There is a distinction between the two, and that has to be maintained or bad theology is going to result. And as I said, I've said this before, it is not really understandable if you were in the Word. If you were reading the Word and studying the Word, it is not understandable to me how somebody could say, oh, the church has replaced Israel because the Jews are exiled and they're out. However, yes, ma'am, can we help you? Hey, how you doing there, Bones? Good to see you. We got some mangoes. Please, when you leave, uh, take some mangoes with you. All right, so we don't have to carry them back home. But uh, uh, Hidako, come here a minute. I need to show you something that came by here just a minute ago before we go on. But everybody sees the distinction, Edico, come here, between Jew and Gentile, between uh, the church and Israel. The church is not Israel. Okay, come down here, and here's what happened a minute ago. I fell more in love with you. Happy anniversary to you. There you go. All right, go ahead. You can go sit down with Uncle Bones, and there you go. All right, well... Oh, yeah. Well, that's what we call them because we have children. And so, yeah, anyway. Um, okay, so here we go. Um, the, the Church of God. Those in the church deserve the same care because there are differing levels of maturity. If offense is given to the weaker in the faith, it could cause them to stray from their faith. What a price to pay over something as trivial as eating a meal. It is our obligation to edify others, not to tear them down. Having noted that, the words are clear and explicit. There is yet an obvious qualification which needs to be addressed. It is true that we are to give no offense, but this is true in different matters. 
We are never, and this is one thing that unfortunately churches have taken off on a great tangent lately, we are never to forsake proper doctrine at the expense of offense. It doesn't matter if you offend somebody because you don't believe that gays should be ordained in a church. It doesn't matter because the Bible says that is not allowed. All right. If somebody is doing something like that and they claim they're a believer, they are to be expelled from the church. If they don't claim to be a believer, then they can sit in the pew and they can be quiet and they can listen. But they are not to be in any leadership positions. And that's the same with any sin. It's just that's one that happens to be taking off nowadays. It doesn't matter what the sin is. If it is a blatant, flagrant violation of scripture, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5? Get the man out. Get the man out. And he wasn't doing that. He was doing something else. But he said, expel the man. Don't let that yeast build up in the church. All right. Tolerance quickly becomes the death knell for the sound Christian church. As soon as tolerance becomes of primary importance, doctrine can no longer be adhered to in a proper way. Thus, the church very rapidly becomes no church at all. The truths contained in the Bible are firm, fixed, and unchanging. Be ready to stand on biblical truth, even at the expense of offending others who are belligerent against it. It doesn't matter if they're offended. It doesn't matter if they're belligerent. You have a responsibility if you're in the church teaching and you have a responsibility if you're in the church sitting here listening to know the Bible well enough to know what is proper, what is improper, and how to handle it. And not to tolerate anything except what the Lord says is appropriate. Life application. If your church won't stand on the truth of the Bible, it will quickly be no church at all. An example of this is John 14.6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Either that is true or it is not true. It is highly offensive to state to an unbeliever who rejects Jesus that they will never enter heaven's gates, but instead are destined for hell. However, Jesus has spoken and the Bible has recorded his words. If a church will not proclaim that simple truth, it is not a church at all. Stand on the Bible, be firm and fixed in your resolve to proclaim Christ and be willing to take whatever abuse or insults will come your way because of it. There's a guy over in Australia. I think I might mention him this Sunday in the update. I can't remember, but uh, it, you know, it's getting real long and I'm going to have to cut things. But um, Israel Folau, anybody heard of him? Yeah, okay. soccer, player. soccer player. And all he did was say that homosexuality is not right according to Christianity. That is all he did. He was not belligerent. He wasn't. And all he did was say, this is what the Bible says, and I stand by that. And they kicked him out of the soccer league. He was making millions of dollars a year. The finest player over there. All right. They kicked him out. And now they're attacking after his wife. They're trying to come after her the because she plays some other like ping pong or something you know volleyball or something anyway and uh whatever it is and um so they are still defending her they're holding the line with her but they here's so i'll tell you what it is and if i repeat it on sunday you get to hear it again or you can sleep during this but um he uh uh he has legal fees now in order to sue to get his job back because he did nothing wrong he's just proclaiming his religion that's all he was doing they started a GoFundMe account in order to help pay his legal fees. The first day it got up to $750,000. The people that don't like him complained to GoFundMe and GoFundMe took the money away. Oh, they took yeah. it away. Yeah, they said, we're going to refund the money to people. So what happened? The 
some uh, Christian alliance in Australia said, okay, well, if GoFundMe doesn't want the money because they make a lot of money off of these these things. Right. So if they don't want the money, we'll start one ourselves. And they started a crowdfunding and it went up to $2 million in like a day. And now somebody is suing that organization oh. so he can't get his money. So it, this, this guy, and all he did was say, I accept what the Bible says on this one issue. I cannot participate in this type of a lifestyle because my faith won't let me. He said nothing wrong. He said what Australia has proclaimed proudly for the past couple hundred years up until the recent past. And now he is in hot water. He's lost his job. He's going through all of this. He's being tortured by the left in his daily tweets and in everything else because he's standing for Christ. Yeah, there he is. He's what? Well, he's not really black. He's he's like an aborigine or something. It's a racial thing. Yeah, it's a racial thing. Yeah, that, don't like it. exactly. That's right. It, the poor guy. I mean, he just he's he's a firm believer in Christ, and he will not step down from his position. Hats off to him. All right, hats off to him. Fixed and unchanging is the word of God. It proclaims a message which must be adhered to. Let us stand on His truths while in this life we trod. Are you also willing this to do? What is more important than obedience to the Lord? What profit is gaining the world and yet losing your soul? And so be willing to accept the truth of God's word. Fear not in obedience, for he is in control. He will exalt you for your faithful adherence to his book, Israel Falau, and will reward you for your willingness to proclaim it. When you look back on the noble path that you took, you will be honored that to his word you did submit. Verse 1033. Charlie. Yes. You do these poems, I guess that's what you would call it. Yeah. On your Sunday sermon. Yeah. How, how many hours does it take you to do that? It all depends on... It, it, it rhymes it, with what? Yeah, it, it <laughs> depends on what it rhymes with. and I just, I just think that is just the greatest thing ever. Well, I, I appreciate that because I don't know if people like them or not. I get once in a while a comment on it, but other than that, I don't hear anything. And so... I, so I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly right. Anyway, yeah, I, I don't know, Burke. I have no idea. I just, if it comes to me, I type it and I did these for the uh, the uh, uh, commentary. And I haven't done it in a while just because, you know, I, I have gotten busy with life. Well, but you do this every once in a while in here. In here, yeah. Because this is 1 Corinthians. I did this probably six, seven years yeah. ago. But uh, I never miss it with the sermon. I'm going to do it with the sermon because one, there's a lot of information in a sermon. Okay, there's more than you will ever ever absorb. I mean, we could do one verse and it would be a lot because we're studying the Hebrew, right? So by the time you get halfway through the sermon, you're starting into another place. I always insert a poem, and that helps you mentally relax. That's why I do that. All right, and then at the end. I've read you the passage, we've analyzed the passage, and at the end I put into a poem, and that will help you remember it. Even if you don't remember the content of what we studied, you'll remember the passage because you've heard it three times in one Sunday. And that's why I do that. It's important to me. It's important that people hear the Word of God. And so, Someday. yes, it can take a long time at times to do those poems. It can take a long time. but Someday, someday they'll be... Bible and poetry. Oh, won't that be nice? The whole Bible and poetry. Charlie Garrett. Yeah, but I always qualify it when I post the poem on the internet when I'm done with that particular book, whether it's Numbers or Ruth or whatever, I always post and say, I am not trying to change the Word of God. Please lighten up if you're going to email me and don't. You know, I say something like, because I don't want people emailing me. I'm trying to make it where it's a memory tool. I cannot claim that that is any longer the Word of God because I've now put it in poem form. But it is a 
training tool to help people to remember the word. And that's why I do it. And if people don't like it, if they think, if they're offended by it, I can't help them. People get offended for every, every possible day. reason in the world. Well, we got the living Bible and the message and all these. That's are, right. Are, are, you know, they're similar. Yeah, they're similar. That's right. And I am specifically qualifying saying this is not an attempt to translate or I, all I'm doing is making a poem. That's it. Please just drop it. Okay. Anyway, 1033. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Okay, this is different enough where I'll read it. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And this is the last verse of the chapter. In this paragraph, Paul has noted that everything we do should be to the glory of God, and that we are to give no offense in the process. As shown, though, that is concerning issues of conscience, not issues of doctrine. We are never asked to do something which will be at the expense of upholding right doctrine. You're not going to find that in Scripture from the hand of any apostle or prophet ever, okay? And especially not from Jesus. He offended everybody that he was standing around talking to. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, he offended them all. Because he held to the word of God, even to a single word that he would argue over. A single word. The word of God cannot be broken, he said. That is all there is to it. It is the word of God, and it doesn't matter if you are offended or not. It is not to be played with, or toyed with, or trifled with. Okay? But in those areas where conscience is an overarching concern, be it to the Jews, or to the Greeks, or to the church of God, as Paul says, we should be willing to look to the example set before us, that of Christ who did not please himself, Romans 15, verse 3. <coughs> With Christ as our ultimate example, Paul notes that he had attempted to be like-minded and that we could use his example. And so he notes, just as I also please all men in all things. Why would Paul note himself as an example rather than stating it as he did in Romans 15, 3? The answer is that Christ is an overall example to those who would follow him. He is the head of the church and the fulfillment of scripture. But though he is the first example to the church, Paul is an example within the church. Just like you'll see somebody quote Charles Spurgeon on Facebook, maybe. You're not holding him up above Jesus. He's just making a quote about doctrine. He is an example within the church. I saw a Spurgeon quote from my friend Wade today, and that's why I mentioned that. Okay. You're not exalting anybody. You're just simply showing that he is an example within the church when he says something right. And you can give an example of somebody that is not always right. As a matter of fact, well, I'm not going to go looking for it, but um, uh, I, I can't remember it, so I'm not going to do it. But um, if somebody cites, what's his name, um, John um, Calvin, okay, the guy is wrong in a lot of areas. He's wrong in a lot of areas, okay? Calvinism does not hold the line on proper doctrine. The word I was thinking of earlier when I couldn't think of it is systematic theology, okay? When I, I, I got stuck in my head, you know, I was talking about different things that people will do. They'll write a commentary, they'll write this. John Calvin wrote a book of systematic theology. That means he's taking the Bible in a system and he's showing how the different disciplines all tie together, whether you've got angiology or hamartiology or soteriology, you've got all these different doctrines and they all fit together. He's writing a systematic theology. Okay, that's what I was trying to think of. But he went off on some funny tangents in his systematic theology. That does not mean that when he writes something proper, you shouldn't quote him. 
if he quoted it properly and he's saying something that's profound and wise and biblical, quote him. And then if you do, get ready for people to attack you because you're quoting John Calvin, even if what they he says they agree with, simply because it's John Calvin. It doesn't matter if Billy Graham says something in one of his crusades that's very profound or very honoring of Christ, and you put it on a meme and you post it on social media, somebody will tear you apart because they don't like Billy Graham. Not because the what it says there is good, but because they don't like the source. And that is known as a source fallacy. Just because something comes from a source does not mean it is always reliable. And just because something comes from a source does not mean that it is always bad. Everything has to be taken in its proper place. And if it's correct, go ahead and cite it. Okay. Yes, hyperfactuality. Okay. Um, he is a, a, Paul is an example within the church, is what I just said. In other words, Paul's ministry included outreach to those outside the church for evangelism and those inside the church for doctrine and for edification. Therefore, there is nothing wrong when he uses himself as an example. He is showing how to act under the headship of Christ, and he is doing it to please all men, as he says, in all things. In fact, he says, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many. Rather than accepting the liberties that he has been granted in Christ, he was willing to forego the exercise of them, meaning his liberties, and not tread on the conscience of another. He could have enjoyed certain meats, but he would abstain if he were to harm another's conscience. To him, finding joy in the Lord was more pleasing than finding joy in a banquet. In all things, his hope was to bring about a great knowledge of Christ and others so that, as he says, they may be saved. This was his highest hope for all whom he met. If he could lead them to Christ, even if it meant doing so at the expense of his own personal liberties, then to him it would have been worth it. Matthew Poole sums this thought up for the well-grounded believer. Yes, Christians have great liberty in Christ, but he says, notwithstanding that liberty, yet they ought to have respect to the spiritual good and salvation of others. And to do that part which their judgments inform them will be as least to the spiritual damage and detriment, so most to the spiritual good and profit of the souls of others whom they converse. Life application. What is the value of another person's salvation? What is the value of another person's proper doctrine? Are we willing to destroy the chance of people coming to Christ simply because we can do something? Or would it be more prudent to stop and consider if our actions, though allowable, might be detrimental towards another person? We have been left here not to indulge ourselves in our freedoms in Christ, but to be examples to lead others to Christ. That's why we've been left here, folks, is because, it, listen, if it was getting saved and going to heaven, wouldn't that be great? But that's not how it works. He leaves us here for a purpose. And some of us, our purpose, as damaging as this might be to your sensibilities, is to suffer. Because in our suffering, we can glorify God. Bill Bright, remember the guy that, uh, what was his uh, campus crusade for Christ? Yes. Four scriptural laws, and some people say that's wrong. Some people say it's right. Once again, people argue over everything. But he was dying of a lung disease. I don't remember the specific one. And he was in great pain. He was in agony, and he died a long death. And yet, to his last day, he kept glorifying God through it. Sometimes we are left here to suffer in order to glorify God. We got people in this 
room right now that are suffering with certain afflictions. I'm not going to highlight them right now, but he knows who I'm talking about. He's suffered through the loss of family. He's suffered through all kinds of difficult things in the past couple of years. And he never fails to honor Christ with his life. I don't know another person in my life that is more Christ-like than this individual. So there you go. I mean, this is sometimes this is what we have to go through is so that we can we can empathize with others. Oh, well, I was a drunk once too, or, you know, I've had cancer too, or I, you know, if you're talking to Charlie Garrett, yes, I don't have a brain also, but whatever it is, we can empathize with people that have the same affliction as us, okay? That's the reason why he left us behind. So we are to use that to God's glory, and we're to use it in a way which will bring people to be saved and then hopefully bring them to right doctrine, okay? 11.1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Okay, there you go. That explains what we just went through. Although this first verse of chapter 11 sums up the thoughts of chapter 10 in a succinct way, it is appropriate that, he begins, that it begins chapter 11. It is a good transition to the points that are ahead as much as it is a summary of the points which have already been made. As noted in the previous evaluation, there is nothing wrong with Paul asking others to imitate him. This is especially so because he follows up the thought immediately with, just as I also imitate Christ. Paul's example is Christ. As this is so, then those who have learned from Paul can rightly use his example as one to emulate. He is an example within the church of Christ who is over the church. He isn't asking for eyes to be on him, but rather he is noting that his actions are in line with the expectations of Christ. And throughout his writings, it is Christ whom Paul both explains and exalts. He writes these words about Christ to the church in Philippi. Here's what he says in Philippians, hang on one second here, two, I just listened to this today on my Bible, um, my uh, audio Bible in the car. Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, this is the last thing I listened to before I turned off my car. That's how fresh this is in my mind. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul was not exalting himself when he says, imitate me. He is always exalting Christ. All right? Always. If you, uh, as a just a point to stop, if you ever have that knock on the door, which you so dread, and it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, it does say in the book of, uh, what is it, uh, 2 John, do not welcome them or greet them lest you share in their wicked work. That does not mean that you can't stand there and debate with them. Okay, you're not to welcome them. Don't give them tea and dumplings. You are implicitly acknowledging their faith when you do those things. When you say, hey, how you doing there, brother? You are acknowledging what they believe, even though it is her heretical. Okay, so you are not to do those things. But you can debate a Jehovah's Witness without fear of violating that in Scripture. 
And one of the places that I will always tell them, because I'm not going to debate them after the first couple lobs of scripture tennis, but I will tell them what I would like you to do is go to the book of Isaiah. And I'd like you to take every term that Isaiah uses of the Lord. He's the Savior. He's the Redeemer. My glory I will not give to another. I am the Redeemer. I know of none other. He goes through there, and every time he says something like that, such as, to me, the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, go to the New Testament, and you will find a corresponding use of that same tenet applied to Jesus Christ. Therefore, either God is highly convoluted, he is mixed up, and the Bible is not worth the paper it's written on, or Jesus Christ is God. There's no other way of getting around that. And so if they are willing to simply take the book of Isaiah and look at what he has said about the Lord, meaning Jehovah, and then going to the New Testament, and it says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yet my glory I will not give to another. It goes on and on and on with Isaiah and the New Testament. Do that, and you will be able to hopefully pull them out of the pit that they're in. I don't know if it'll work. You know, they may not come back. I've got to check with the elders or whatever they say. That's usually, it, that's usually what they say. And then the elders say, don't worry about it, and it, it ends there. But there are people that have come out of that, that wicked cult. There are people that have been redeemed out of it, and they usually end up writing books about it. They write, uh, they become great evangelists for that cause, and they're met with scorning. They're met with accusation. That's too bad, but they're willing to do it because they understand that they have now met the Lord of creation, who is Jesus Christ. Okay, so um, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Paul is glorifying Christ. He is the head of the church and the fulfillment of Scripture. And though he is the first example to the church, Paul is an example within the church. In other words, Paul's ministry included outreach to those outside the church for evangelism and those inside the church for doctrine and for edification. Life application, until the epistles were written, there was only verbal instruction and emulation of the conduct of the apostles and the other disciples for believers to follow. Now, with the Bible complete, we have what we need to understand both in the example of Christ and how to be obedient to it. Further, we have the conduct of the apostles recorded. When they were in line with the truth, when they failed and were rebuked for it, and so on. Can anybody think of a time when an apostle actually did something wrong and was rebuked for it? We have the John's brother. We have uh, Peter. Uh, Peter. Galatians chapter Peter. 2, especially. That's the one that's on my mind. Let's go there just so you know that I didn't make that up. It says in Galatians chapter 2, which I can't wait till we get to Galatians unless we get raptured first. It says there, um, it, this is a good passage. I read it from time to time because I just want people to understand that, yes, the apostles were at fault at times, and that's recorded. Specifically, it's just, I'm going to start with chapter 2, 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He's a Greek and he never got circumcised. The entire principle or point of doctrine, which is found in Galatians, and there's a lot of minor points, but the major point is no circumcision. 
circumcision was mandated under the law of Moses. If you were not circumcised, you were out. That is all there was to it. All right, verse four, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Chris, who goes out on mission work with us, will talk, and she brings up Galatians a lot. And she says, if somebody can't read the book of Galatians one time and understand that we are not under the law, I don't understand. I don't think there's any hope for them. I think, you know, that might be a little extreme. It takes a little time to get through people's thick heads, but she's right. It is so basic. It is so common and so obvious what he's saying. How can somebody not see it? Well, go on. To whom we did not yield submission, meaning to the false preachers, even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it made no difference to me. God shows per personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcision was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. Here it comes, verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. Ooh, he's doing something not allowed. All right. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Do you think the Gentiles went over and prepared kosher food for Peter? Absolutely not. Peter went in and he ate with them, whatever they were eating. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So that even Barnabas, who had just been given the right hand of fellowship, was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if we, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. We'll stop there. But you get the point. Peter was wrong and he was rebuked openly by Paul and it is recorded in God's word so that we don't make the same mistake again. And yet it is all over this world and it has been growing and growing and growing in the past few years. Hebrew Roots Movement. We have to observe the Feast of Israel. We have to do this. We have to get circumcised. We have to observe the Sabbath day. All of those things, as Paul says, make you a debtor to the law. You have estranged yourself from Christ. Christ profits you nothing. Yes. This also blows a hole to Gospels. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one Gospel. Hello? It's, it, 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 it's so obvious. Mm -hmm. It's so obvious. There is one Gospel for Jew and for Gentile. Hyperdispensationalism, as we saw, is completely taken out of context. Anyway, um, Paul's ministry included outreach to those outside the church for evangelism. Okay, yes, um, 
we have the conduct. I read this. I'll read it uh, again. Further, we have the conduct of the apostles recorded when they were in line with the truth and when they failed and were rebuked for it and so on, as we just saw with Peter. If we study the Bible, we will be able to develop a proper understanding of how to conduct our own affairs in the presence of our glorious Lord. And that's the only way it's going to happen. We can be saved and we can be pleasing to God in our salvation and not be pleasing at God to God at all in our walk in our salvation. He can, we, he can be completely displeased with us. Why? Because we're not living in accord with the word. He's happy with us that we're saved, but he's not happy with us in how we are conducting ourselves in our salvation. So, 11.2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Okay, I like that because this one says the traditions, which is probably closer to the Greek, but the word tradition has such a negative connotation when Jesus brings it in that a, a teaching actually just kind of is easier on the ears. But anyway, um, this verse begins a section which will continue through 1 Corinthians 11, verse 16. It will take thoughtful care to properly evaluate, and it is an area which is greatly misunderstood and, it, and has been often misinterpreted, leading to some divergent traditions within the church. He begins with, now I praise you, brethren. Remember what he's doing. He's Bonding to questions that were asked of him. Remember that at the beginning? Right. Now those things that you asked him, he's doing this. And now he's saying, now I praise you, brethren. So it's something that he's pleased with that they're doing and probably something that they referred to in their letter to him. Okay. Paul is very good about giving praise where praise is due and also calling out wrong doctrine or attitudes when necessary as well. By beginning this with a note of praise, He's ensuring that they will perceive his words with the proper mental attitude, which should only solidify their continued right performance. When you start out with the word of negativity in your response to somebody or in your email to somebody, the whole rest of that, it doesn't matter what you say. It makes no difference what is said the rest of it. If they come at you and they say, I, I won't get into that one, but I was going to use an example, but it's too, too new in my mind and I'm still frustrated over it. But anyway, Always start out with something positive. I like you. You do a great job at this. You're very good at that. However, I'd like to correct you on something. Because if you don't do that, if you just start out with, you know, the thing you said was so stupid, the, the entire conversation after that is just going to devolve in. Yeah, just delete. I mean, you might not even get an answer, but if you do it, if it's from me, it probably won't be a nice one. I guarantee that. I'm just real short with people when they start out like that, accusing you of something when they're completely in the wrong in what they're accusing. Anyway, but when they're right, I usually will eat my crow and say, you know, I was wrong about that, which I do from time to time. So, to your credit, remember when you were giving communion, covered your head, somebody brought that up. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. You know, it was just like it was an innocent thing. And absolutely. Like, you know what? I've been doing this incorrectly. Yeah. You're right. Absolutely right. Got to do that 100%. Now, did I tell you? I think I did in an email. I'll have to repeat this on Sunday, but um, when I was in Israel in May 2nd through 6th, we did our journey. We got back. We listened to your prophecy update while we were driving back from Jerusalem, okay? So we were in the car, and we needed to get... Sergio was doing everything to make sure that the streaming was working. And I was right there, and you guys had no idea. Well, we got back to the house in time for Will's sermon. So Will is t telling me about his sermon. I said, oh, yeah, I watched it. And it was real good. He thought I watched it on YouTube. I was the one that was sitting there in Israel 
with the thing switching for the online audience so they could see what the people in the church saw. Remember, he had graphics up. Well, those graphics don't transmit to the streaming people. So I was sitting in Israel and I was moving the graphics from there. And you guys, we were laughing. As a matter of fact, Sergio took a picture, which I hope he'll send to me, of us sitting there watching Will Groban preaching. And yeah, anyway, so that was that was kind of fun. That was a fun one. It was it was sneaky, but you know it was worth it. It was it was so. Oh, and that's what brought me up with that. You brought up the Lord's Supper. I was watching that when you said to him, you got the the, the plates wrong. We laughed at you. Oh, that was so funny. That was very funny. The way you were, you just jumped all over Jim on that. Oh, anyway. Yeah. And then you, you handled it so well. I would have stopped and I would have just frozen. He goes, it was just, it was classic. It was classic. You, he handles stress so much better than I do. If somebody interrupts him while you're doing your beginning like me, I do that. I guess, I guess, because she gives you a lot of it, I'm sure. Oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Anyway, um, okay, we got to get back to the, the uh, yes, um, 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen. I praise you, brother. Okay, here we go. He gives the praise by beginning this with a note of praise. He is ensuring that they will perceive his words with the proper mental attitude, which should only solidify their continued right performance, okay? It should be remembered that Paul has been addressing items which were submitted to him in writing. This is one of the reasons for his letter to them in the first place. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, he said, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. He's been going through this list and answering their questions. The section will be no different here. There must have been an issue concerning something he said to them of which they were asking further clarification. Understanding this, he continues with that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. This is his compliment, and this is what sets the tone for the further instruction which will now be presented. In his statement, the word translated as traditions indicates something which had been delivered to them by the instruction of the apostles, not a tradition of the past which was of a cultural nature. These are issues which stem from the church itself and not something which he or another apostle brought along with their own pre-existing traditions. Everybody got that? This is something that is established by Christ in the church and they are passing it on as a tradition. Lastly, in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 17, we will read Paul's words which say, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better but for the worse. This rebuke will in no way contradict his words of verse 2. Though the Corinthians had kept the traditions as they had received them, they will need correction concerning the issues of liberty and brotherhood. After he completes the thought he is now addressing, Paul will deal with those issues to ensure the church functions well within those parameters. Life application, as with all things, we need to have a clear understanding of the context of a teaching in order to understand if it applies to us or not. In the case of the church, our teachings are those which come from the epistles, especially the letters of Paul. His words have been given to us in order for us to have sound, healthy churches. That is why Paul is the very first thing which is tossed out of a church when they go down Apostasy Avenue, okay? And then eventually they turn right onto Heresy Highway and they just keep going. They take Paul out first because Paul's letters are intended for the Gentile church age. 
All right. That doesn't mean that it's not Jew and Gentile in this church age. It means that the Gentiles are the predominant main people in the church. And the Jews come to Christ individually. They come to Christ in very small numbers. Uh, yet a remnant will be saved. Okay. Until the end times when the Gentile church is taken out along with any Jewish believers. And then the end times will come. Okay, but that is why we call it the Gentile Church Age, and that is why we hold to Paul's letters in particular. We've talked about it, how James and Hebrews and all of these other epistles, Peter, they all are end times epistles based on the structure of the Bible, you can see. And we've talked about that, so I'm not going to get into it again today, but Paul's letters are our marching orders. Everything else is good. Everything else is all God-breathed. It's all inspired. It's all intended to train us and to help us grow in Christ but it must be taken in its proper context and for the intent which God meant for us, okay? So, I'll read that again. As with all things, we need to have a clear understanding of the context of the teaching in order to understand if it applies to us or not. In the case of the church, our teachings are those which come from the epistles and especially the letters of Paul. His words have been given to us in order for us to have sound, healthy churches. All of scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for our understanding of God's redemptive plans for man, but not all of Scripture is applicable at the same time in the same way. Okay, everybody got that? If, because if it was all applicable in the same time, in the same way, one, we'd all have very convoluted doctrine, everybody on this planet, but two, we'd all be observing the law of Moses, and we'd also all have our firstborn as the uh, priest in the house, even though that was nullified through the law of Moses for Israel. And so we'd have a contradiction in our houses because we'd have a priest as a firstborn. And then we'd have to go down to Jerusalem where the Levites have taken the place of the firstborn and the uh, tribe of Kohath has taken the priestly position within Levi. And so we'd have all kinds of confused doctrine. Not all of scripture is applicable to all dispensations in the same way. It is all God-breathed. It is all for our instruction, as we've seen. I mean, we haven't been out of the books of Moses now other than a couple short trips in eight years, nine years, however long it's been. And it's all applied, but it's applied differently, okay? And we've learned a lot, I think. I think it was not a mistake going through the books of Moses. I don't think, does anybody here regret that? I, I absolutely think it's wonderful, but, you know, some people, I had one person email me when I was in, like, the middle of Exodus or something, and it was a lady, and she said, I think God is telling you to uh, get out of the Torah and get into the, the prophets, because these are the end times, and we need to, and I'm like, one, God isn't telling me that at all, and two, it ain't going to happen. I'm on a set path, and that's what we're going to do. I, I'm sorry. I'm not going into the prophets. Why? Because 10,000 people have been in the prophets. Very few people have ever gone through the law of Moses, or I should say the books of Moses. It's not all the law, but very few people have. And when they do, they go through them very quickly, and they're not detailed. Okay? And so that's why I'm doing this, is because we need to have a record of all of the Bible. When the church is taken out, hopefully these things will be preserved. Maybe they won't be. But if they are, people will be able to understand context. And so to me, it's an important thing. All right. It may be very long. It may take a long time to get out of the book of Deuteronomy, but we will get out of the book of Deuteronomy and we'll be all the better off for it. That's what I think. I don't so, know. So like my, the Bible, like my refrigerator, I have dogs and a cat, everything in there is 
mind, but not everything is for me. That's exactly right. That's very well said. That was very well said. I don't know if they heard you because sometimes they can hear you and sometimes they can't. But he, he gave an example. He has a refrigerator with all kinds of stuff in the refrigerator. He's got dog food and cat food and he's got bird food and he's got uh, Linda's food and he's got his food. And sometimes they're uh, the same. But he says everything in there is for him in one way, but in another way, it's not at all for him. The cat food is for the cat. It's for him because he enjoys taking care of his cat and having a cat. But if he ate the cat food, he'd probably be grossed out and maybe he'd have a bad liver. I don't know. So you see, it's the same thing with scripture. That was a very good example. Very good. Okay. You know why I um, knew it so well, don't you? Why is that? Cat food. Oh, cat it food. Tastes, tastes good. Tastes good. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's like, um, what was the, uh, oh, yes. Special tuna. It is. Do you have your Greek uh, New Testament there handy on this transgression? I like the word teaching that Jim, Jim read. Okay, I, I do too. Let me, uh, let me, uh, what verse is it? It's 1 uh, Corinthians 11.2. 11, 2. 11, 2. We'll do that because Burke asked, we're going to let him interrupt us for a second and we'll do this. Uh, let me go to... Uh, hang on, I got to pull it up here. I don't have the uh, the Greek in front of me, so we got to go here to get it. And um, we'll go to. Um, uh, come on, this thing's a little slow there, Charlie. Okay, and then we're going to go to one C O R, and that was eleven two. You said eleven two. Okay, and you want to see the Greek, and you want to know what the word is, whether it's teaching or. I, and like I say, I prefer the word teaching simply because tradition. Uh, got a lot of baggage. Yeah, it, it can have baggage, but it says here um, paradosis, which is um, it's a feminine noun and it's a handing down or over a tradition. So it's something that's handed down. Okay, uh, comes from it's a uh, compound word para from close beside and didomai, which means to give over properly, give hand over from close beside, referring to tradition as passed down from one generation to the next. But as I said. In this case, it is passed down by the apostles to the uh, church. So it's a very short tradition. It's not something that had been around a long time. But teaching is fine because it's giving you the idea that it's something that you're being taught. It is an instruction. But, but to hear you read this and your comments there, the teaching seemed to fit so much better than the mm -hmm. translation. Yeah. Uh, traditions. Right. Right. And that's probably just because of my bent on it. Because I, I I'm doctrine. I just doctrine you know whereas uh that is something that they have a tradition until it's written into the bible and then it becomes no longer a tradition it's the word of god mm -hmm. but they had to start with something yeah. they didn't have the bible and so until it was compiled all they had was traditions or teaching so teaching would be fine okay anyway go ahead we got time for at least one more it should be a rather exciting three yes okay. now that i want you to realize that the head of every man is christ Okay, before I get into this, I almost said this before I started chapter 11, but I thought it won't because the first two chapters are kind of open. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is something that is so misunderstood by the church. It's going to be hard to understand because there's a lot of information in here, okay? Obviously, there's a lot of people that have taken this in little denominations and misunderstood it to the point where women wear bonnets and stuff, okay? It's going to be a complicated teaching, but when I was in uh, SES, Professor Beaumont gave us all our um, uh, course requirements, and he said that one of the course requirements was to pick a uh, teaching in the New Testament and to do a synthetic study on it, okay? And so 
I, I should have brought it. Maybe I'll bring it next week. And we can, a lot of what I have here is from my own study. And I went back to Professor Beaumont and I said, that's too easy. I said, I could pick the simplest thing in the world and I could be done in five minutes and I haven't learned anything. I said, I would like you to pick what you want me to do. And he came back and he said, well, that's wonderful. He says, I've always wondered about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, specifically this issue, which we're going to talk about. And so I did the synthetic study and I benefited a lot from it. If you want to know how it works, email me and I'll email the whole study. I don't care. Um, unless it's, I don't think it's copyright what I've done. I got to make sure I don't give any of the, the course notes stuff away. But anyway, if you want it, I can send you what I have that's mine. And um, uh, it, it'll just show you how you can do your own synthetic study. It's a really great way of analyzing the Bible. You're asking it questions. You're developing uh, a, a mode of interpreting the Bible. So that really helps you understand what's going on. Anyway, this was my synthetic study. And so a lot of the notes here come from there. And it is correct. I don't care if people say, oh, I disagree with you on that. Please don't email me on it because you are R-O-N-G. Okay. That's, <laughs> I, I, I know that this is the correct interpretation because I've done the study. I have read every commentary on this particular issue that is known to humankind. I, I spent a lot of time on this to make sure I know that it's right. So I, I don't mean to be arrogant in that. I didn't mean that. I meant that as a joke. Okay. So if you want to disagree with me, that's fine. But I am not going to accept your interpretation is what I will say. I, it's not going to happen because I know what every scholar since uh, Augustine has said on this. Okay. But here we go. What would be said for the next few chapters of instruction is given for order propriety and edification of the church it is intended to keep things functioning properly and it is set doctrine which if not adhered to will lead to dysfunction disorder and eventually to chaos within the church some of the words which are coming are directed to proper male female hierarchical conduct the instructions are in no way intended to diminish the role of women in the church, nor to subjugate them merely in a cultural way. That is the first thing that liberals will seize onto. They'll say, well, this was cultural. This doesn't apply. It's written in God's word. It is instruction for the church. It is recorded as church doctrine for the church age. It is not cultural, but that is the first thing that they will use so that they can violate scripture by saying this is only cultural. That is not what's going on there at all. Okay. But instead of simply saying women are to pray with their head covered, he starts, oh, I'm sorry, I got to go back up, cultural. Um, some of the words which are coming are directed to proper male-female hierarchical conduct. I said that. Okay, rather, the words are intended to instruct on what is right and proper at all times during the church age. In the preceding verse, it was noted that the Corinthians were to be praised for having kept the traditions just as Paul had delivered them, his words. However, there were questions that had obviously arisen as he is now answering those questions for the proper functioning of the church. But instead of simply saying women are to pray with their head covered, he starts with a much larger and broader aspect of the issue to which he will address. Thus, by showing the overall nature of hierarchy, his words will demonstrate why things work as they do and why certain things are proper and others are not. In other words, they came and they said, should women wear their head covered. He, they probably sent just a very basic question. Instead of just saying yes or no, he goes through the entire panorama of why things work the way they do within the Christian context, which deals directly with the challenge we're having in the church right now of people saying that God is not a male. 
We know he's not a male. That's not the point. He refers to himself in the male, in the masculine, in both testaments of the Bible. And there's a reason for that. God is spirit. God does not have parts. Okay. Jesus is a male. We know that. He came as a male. But the, the doctrine of God the Father stands for a reason. And this is what this is talking about. Hierarchy and why things work the way they do. You take this out, chaos is going to ensue. That's all there is to it. Okay. He starts with this larger, broader aspect. Thus, by showing the overall nature of the hierarchy, his words will demonstrate why things work as they do and why certain things are proper and others are not. Therefore, we can draw accurate conclusions from the point which he provides. And so he begins with, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. He's established the headship right there. We don't need to worry about bonnets and about hair and anything else. Christ is what matters. He is the head of every man. The first obvious question which should arise is, is this referring to male believers or all people? He said the head of every man is Christ. At first, it would seem that this must be referring to all men because the next thought is the head of woman is man. This seems to be referring to all women. But 1 Corinthians 15, 48 and 49 says this. We're going to go a little further on. 1 Corinthians 15, 48 and 49. As was the man of the dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, so also we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. This sets a clear delineation between believers and non-believers and it indicates that those born only of the dust have Adam as their head. Therefore, Paul's words are referring to those within the church. His next thought is, and the head of Christ is God. This leads to another obvious question, which must be asked. Is this saying that Jesus is not God? The answer is no. The Bible elsewhere indicates very clearly that Jesus is God. However, Jesus also subordinates himself to the Father, such as in the book of John chapter 14. John chapter 14, he says in verse 28, You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Further, just because man is the head of the woman, it doesn't mean that the woman isn't a human. Therefore, we can see that there is a hierarchy within the Godhead itself and that there is a hierarchy within humanity as well. Before I go on to give you an idea about what Jesus said, the Father is greater than me. Abraham is in his tent. He's got his son. He's got his wife. He's got his grandson. He's got his great-grandson. They're all sitting there having dinner. Who is the greatest in that tent? Is Abraham exactly the same humanity as the other people in that tent? Then obviously, greater than has many meanings. Okay, when Jesus said the Father is greater than I am, he is making a theological point, just as we make a point about humanity. Abraham is greater than because of this. Okay, <laughs> further, just because I've read that, it, it, there is also a hierarchy within humanity as well. Let me read the whole paragraph again so you know the context. Further, just because man is the head of the woman, it doesn't mean that the woman isn't a human. Therefore, we can see that there is a hierarchy within the Godhead itself and that there is a hierarchy within humanity as well. Again, 
The idea of a hierarchy within the Godhead is also confirmed once again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. When he puts an end to all rule, this is all speaking about Jesus, and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he, meaning God, who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. God is one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is one. Okay? <laughs> Paul has shown that there is a great and eternal hierarchy within the Godhead. Though Christ Jesus is fully God, and though the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal within the Godhead, there is an order and a propriety in dealings between the three. In understanding this, which we have done many times on this board, and we can do it again sometime if you want, we can then understand why there is also an order and a propriety in how men and women conduct their affairs within the church. In Galatians 3, verse 28, Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And that is used all the time by churches to ordain women. It's taken that verse completely out of its intended context and even the words within the verse itself. Yes, it is true. It is also true that within the Godhead, all are one. And yet each has its individual role and responsibility. And the same is true within the church. We are all one spiritually. But we are individuals who are accountable to staying within the parameters set down by God in his word. Life application, and we've got to finish up. We're right at the end. When we violate the tenets of scripture for whatever reason, we usurp what God has intended. When we do so willingly, it is a direct slap in his face because we ignore what he has stated. And this is true regardless of how we feel about an issue. Our feelings do not matter deadly to God. It doesn't matter at all. If we are not right with him in accordance with his word, it doesn't matter how we feel. That hurts my feelings. Tough. All right? When you don't play according to the rules in, in uh, baseball, what do they do? They put you on the bench. Yep. My feelings are hurt. Tough. Get in line with the other people that have hurt feelings. And maybe someday you'll be a great baseball player if you learn to not be offended. All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for your word. We thank you for the surety of it. We thank you for the fact that it is written. It gives us all the guidance we need. And there are times where any one of us, whether it's Charles Spurgeon, John Calvin, or me sitting in this chair, will have doctrine which is inappropriate. And so I would pray that not only would the people be willing to listen to this study and to apply it to their life, but only after they have checked it and made sure that what is taught is correct because we are all fallible. We are all searching out your word and trying our very best, hopefully, to honor you through a right, right evaluation of it. And so help that to be true. But in the meantime, until we meet again next week and they have taken the time to check what they have heard, be with each person here. Bless them in their hearts and soul. Be with the people that we mentioned at the beginning of this uh, class that are having their own difficulties. 
Miss Magnuson and Doug and anybody else out there that's having their own trials. And Lord God, I thank you so much for the beautiful wife you've given me. 34 years, 364 days of bliss. And I pray that if we're still alive tomorrow, that she'll have a good day in her uh, 35th wedding anniversary. I know I will because I'm the one that's blessed. Thank you for that. We love you. We praise you. And we give you all the glory that you're due. And we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Next Thursday is the 4th of July. 4th of July. Are you meeting? Uh, oh, um, no, we won't be here next week. The fourth, I'm glad you said that because I had no idea. we got to put this on break. And I, no, no class.